welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads, episode one. Uh, and I am Dharma Kirti, joined with uh, some friends of mine. If you could introduce yourselves. Yeah, my name is, uh, I'm Aura. Hello. And I'm Kagyu. Hello. Okay, hi. <laughs> and uh, I think, so I wanted to talk, we wanted to talk about uh, Uwiratu, the, uh, what is it called, the Buddhist Bin Laden. I think we'll get into that, I think, in a bit. But um, first, I thought it would be cool if we could talk a little bit about um, how we ended up here and sort of the relationship between how, you know, uh, ending up on right-wing Twitter or whatever you want to call it, dissident Twitter or something, and, um, and Buddhism and how that affected you or how you see your how you see these things interacting um i, I you want you want to start storm because I, I think you're the most well-known out of us and i don't know if you've talked have you have you talked about that before anywhere problem is sorry i think storm's having a connection issue oh, maybe someone no. else you want <laughs> why don't you go aura why don't you go yeah sure um so I'm uh, I'm sort of late Gen X, not quite a millennial, so just to give you my age. And, and that's important because it's kind of been a long journey for me. And I'll give the short version. But um, you know, I first got <laughs> maybe uh, we'll, we'll stretch out the long version over a few episodes. Sounds but good. just to give it an overview, um, I was brought up Christian, but not in a very um, – super strict or in anything way. And, um, I was always very, like, I kept going to church after my family stopped going cause I didn't like the preacher. Um, because I was really interested in those kinds of things. And when I was in my late teens, like a lot of people, I got interested in Buddhism cause it seemed cool. I liked the aesthetic of Zen. I liked reading Jack Kerouac, things so like what, that. What kind of preacher, you say preacher, that makes me think Protestant is, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Episcopalian. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, uh, yeah, so I got real interested in like Jack Kerouac and that kind of stuff and Gary Snyder, um, the poet, um, and I'm from the Pacific Northwest and a lot of that Gary Snyder stuff. He's a poet, uh, who's featured in the Dharma bums and he translated, uh, Chinese poetry and that kind of thing. So I got really into the aesthetic of Buddhism, especially the far East Asian, version of it. And I just started practicing. And when I went to college, I found a temple and I, I went to a Soto Zen temple about Gross. twice a week. Yeah, I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I'm already making this the long version, but um, I, I got, I actually really had a Zazen practice quite pretty seriously, about as seriously as you could expect a 19 year old who wasn't living in Japan to do. Um, and I, but I was always kind of just a, sort of a garden variety leftist in terms of politics. And um, hang on, let me mute this. Um, and I, sorry. Um, so yeah, and so um, for my political journey, I, I in college, I was like a Marxist. I was like a hardcore leftist. I was never really a shit lib. You mean like reading, I just went, reading Marx and going on about the dialectic 
materialism or, or yeah i mean i didn't i te- i wasn't one of those people out in the streets trying to harangue yeah. people but yeah i would read marx and i was really into like in, in contemporary politics things like uh, noam chomsky and stuff like that mm-hmm. so I, I i wanted like revolution and i i was against big capital and all that kind of thing and against basically what i saw as like the destruction of society by modern forces mm. and as i got older and less stupid um <laughs> <laughs> I uh the short version of how I got into right wing stuff is I I just I just noticed like the inconsistencies in so much of the stuff that I that I held in it. a lot of the stuff about women's rights didn't make any sense to me and um what what you know, the, what specifically Well, I just noticed how unhappy women were and um mm. and 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 how people just naturally have given roles and I I never articulated it like oh they belong in the kitchen but I just sort of intuited uh, that that, they that the way that, yeah you know I mean to jo- in a joking way yes right. but really just that like that like modern like our uprooting of everything traditional was like making people miserable and I yeah. saw that first yeah. in in women and I realized it was true about men too in a different way did did, did your dharma practice have anything to do with that realization or what how did that work no there was a lot of tension there because I. I read a lot of Western interpreters of of the Dharma. I, I also read the sutras, and I also read uh, Chinese texts, Indian texts, Tibetan texts. But I also read a lot of like you know everyday Zen by you know so and so from California. Oh gosh, this, uh, yeah, that, that's yeah. my least favorite thing. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, that's uh, I think we could get a whole episode out of just like how I think awful it's going to be a running. Yeah, we can absolutely tear stuff like that apart on a dedicated thing but I, I imagine it'll just be something we that'll that's a deep well to return to for sure um and so i actually would but i sort of drifted away from my dharma because i i had this like the universal love kind of thing and i was just like these people are all such pussies <laughs> so um but more recently in the last um i would say eight years or so um once my politics had sort of solidified on the right and i i skipped over being a democrat skipped over being a republican and i just went straight to being like a mongolian warlord yeah, in terms yeah. of my in terms of my politics and i i've never been a centrist at any point i went just from being like a yeah like a chomskyite to like a I don't know. Vox Day, I know people in our thing often sort of have mixed feelings about Vox Day. I like him a lot. And one of the things that I like, I think he said that was really true is, you know, basically never trust a, cent- a centrist. Yeah, like, that's of any, interesting. Of any, of any kind. Like you could deal better, like, you know, with better with like a, you know, actual leftist. Like there's a, a certain kind of honesty that you can engage with versus, you know, someone who's the big brain centrist type thing. Yeah. Yeah, so as part of this journey, I started taking more more seriously the Christian traditions I was brought up in and the much more older Christian traditions. And I really, I just kind of methodically started going through and reading all the old stuff I could get my hands on and and trying to take them seriously um, because I realized that they were probably a lot smarter than the, you know, the pe- people I was following in college. And that also brought me back to the Dharma. And I I started reading much more of the sutras and um, investigating people who were deeply immersed in real traditions rather than these, you know, California hop, uh, you know, pop yeah. people. Yeah. And, um, and that took me to, to finish my story up here. That, that took me to uh, the Thai forest tradition as expounded um, by the forest Ajans and their foremost uh, Western teacher, or at least American teacher, who's um, 
Oh, we've got somebody joining. Um, who is um, Jeffrey DeGraff or Tanisara Bhikkhu, who's a, quite a scholar and a great teacher. And now my practice is in that Thai forest tradition. I've been doing that for about eight years. And um, I have a regular sitting practice. And um, I'm, I'm much more deeply into it than I ever was back when I was a Jack Kerouac Buddhist. And I'm very grateful for that. So so that's my that's my journey. What is your, before before we, I, we turn it over to someone else, um, what is, I don't, I know very little about Thai forest sitting practice. What is, is it, what is that like? It's, it's almost entirely watching the breath. So it's not entirely different than, than many forms of, of Zazen. It's is, uh, watching. So, yeah. For my, uh, okay, wait, okay, wait, wait. So, so, so it's watching the breath in like a Zazen way. It has a little bit of a different flavor to it. It's much more, um, bodily based it's um watching the flow of energy in the body they use breath to essentially just mean chi mm -hmm. um so you watch the breath and then you let that settle down into watching the energy flow in the body and basically work out all the kinks to make your body what we'd say in the esoteric traditions your etheric layer basically totally clean and free and allowing that to then still your discursive mind your your emotional mind and how, your think, how do you, thinking mind do you manipulate the breath the, the breath at all or is it yeah it's you can but uh mainly it's you manipulate you're using what the buddha called uh directed thought and evaluation which is is basically the discursive mind you direct instead of trying to just quiet it out or let it go away you actually actively use your your powers of directed thought and evaluation to evaluate the flow of energy in the body so you give it the task of watching the body watching the breath uh, and evaluating it and changing the energy flow inside of you and through that through that you still the body and then you allow the the discursive mind to then be quiet after that that's it's fascinating it sounds a lot in certain i mean obviously i'd have to first of all practice and second of all learn a lot more but it, it um it sounds a little like the at least like uh, certain kinds of internal practice in the Tibetan tradition. Um, there's a whole like debate. The reason I frame the question that way is there's there's a kind of a central debate in a lot of ways over um, do you, when you're doing this kind of internal wind practice, um, do you do you need to forcefully manipulate it? in order to get it into the central channel or can you just sort of let it hang out and it'll yeah there, there's not a lot of like uh closing one nostril and breathing hard or anything yeah. like that it's just sitting and breathing although you are encouraged to try breathing shallow then try breathing deep mm -hmm. try breathing uh this way and that way with different textures to see what feels good and the emphasis very interestingly the emphasis is on creating a sense of pleasure like a pleasurable sensation <laughs> um in the body uh, which is a little was a little weird to me at first, but it it's remark it worked remarkably well, and it's very well supported in the I mean, sutras. The, the Buddha oh, talks that's, about. That's, it quite I, a bit. We'll have to talk about that on another episode. But that, yeah, I mean the the bliss thing. I mean, again, it just sound this sounds a lot like Anu Yoga or Anuttara Yoga from from what you're saying. But anyway, uh, we'll get back to that. Storm, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I, the connection seems better now. Okay, cool. So you want to have? You, I, I was asking, have you have you had a chance to talk about all these things before? I, if you have, I, I've missed it, and maybe our listeners have too. I don't know. Yeah, I did it on um, a podcast I do with Helios called The Soak, where we just talk about um, different esoteric things with people who are from that tradition. But I'll go. I'll go ahead and do it again. Um, yeah, if you wouldn't mind. So, so I grew up uh, in a a Southern Baptist church. And it was very much what they call churchianity, where <laughs> you go and you sing and you get a nice feel good um, 
Bible lesson and you get a nice uh, sermon and and no one can answer any kind of deep questions you have about anything. No one cares. And the people act different, totally different at church and then go back to being regular assholes afterwards. So I was I was pretty um, observant and and stuff as a as a kid, very sensitive. So, you know, it didn't take me very long to realize that this is absolutely not for me. And again, no one can answer any of my questions. So I was just sort of like kind of just knew that this wasn't right and just sort of let the question go. Um, but then after I got out of high school, um, I started I read the Dharma Bums as a senior and I was very intrigued about Zen. And around this time, I had a, a distant family member who had come back from being in China who had actually been there studying Zen and he was a Dharma transmitted teacher. Uh, and I had gotten myself a copy of the three pillars of Zen and he, this person happened to be around when I was reading it and he was like, let me, you know, introduce you to this other literature or whatever. Uh, red, I got, red pill you on Zen. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And, uh, I got a copy of the Mumon Khan and uh, a lot of the other, case collections, koan collections, and got really into reading those and ended up becoming a formal student of his. And, you know, this is, this is when I'm 17, 18 around that time. And I practiced under him, um, doing Shikantaza and, uh, a lot of contemplating cases and case studies. And to me, you know, I have a regular sitting practice. I do the type of meditation they call Shikantaza, which is actually, uh, associated more with the Soto school. <clears throat> but, uh, I do that, and I, I uh, study and contemplate cones a lot. So that's basically my practice. And this culminated with me getting Satori at work one day. And uh, I can tell you about that story if you like. Please. So I had been stuck on a, uh, a koan from uh, Zhao Zhao or Josh. Sorry, you dropped out for a second. You've been stuck on a when koan. things are perfect. You, you, huh? You, you dropped out for a second. You, you've been stuck on a koan what? Uh, a Joshu Khan, and he says, a monk asks him, uh, what about it when I'm not taken in by anything? Or no, a monk asks him, uh, what about it when things are as they should be? And he says, they are, of course, as they should be. And then the monk says, well, what about when I'm not taken in by anything? And Joshu says, taken in, already taken in. And so I had taken a break at work, and I'm sitting at my desk, and around the corner, um, there's like a little restaurant. Oh, no. And there's one of those bills. There's a restaurant, huh? there's a what? There was a restaurant on the same floor as where I worked, mm -hmm. and there's one of those little bells sitting on their desk where you ring the little bell, and then the, the little girl comes out and takes you to your seat or whatever. You know, one of those little service bells. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there meditating, and I'm I'm in the zone, and this koan is sitting in my consciousness, and she hits that bell, and it scares me, and then I saw it. I saw it, and then I. <laughs> what's funny is, you know, some people cry, some people freak out. Uh, I thought it was hilarious when I finally understood. <laughs> and and then every koan I'd ever studied started running through my head, and right. I realized, oh, I know the solution to every single one of these. And now when I get a new text, I, every, every, I'm laughing as I'm reading it. I'm cracking up because I get what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I would describe it more, uh, and I, I posted about this, as a – it's like a figuring out a joke more so than it is this uh, grand spir spiritual experience. I mean it is that. But it's much more like a feeling of uh, finally taking a rest after a long struggle or coming back home after a journey. And uh, I just found it very humorous. I actually left. I left work early that day just to walk around and, and mm. finally be alive for the first time. Yeah, there's something uh, 
something about getting out of your own way. And then once you finally, like once, once the neurotic brain stops spinning quite so fast and then it's like, Oh, okay. And then you, the thing can start. So we, we talk about cultivating the great doubt, right? And a lot of us, a lot of people have things that, first of all, they don't even know that they're, that they're attached to these thoughts or that they have these implicit beliefs. You know, I mean, you can get sick where you get too obsessed with the practice, too obsessed with the doctrine, and these things become impediments for you. I had gotten rid of all that, but I just had some, some little things that I made that were left that I had never seen. Right. I had never, I hadn't knocked those supports away. And when that bell frightened me, you know, kind of startled me, everything fell away on its own. And this is because of all the work I had done sitting. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you could get Satori without having ever sat, but it's rare, you know, and I would describe the whole process as gradual and then all at once. <laughs> I like that. Uh, yeah. how, do, how do you see, how do you see the relationship between your, your Zazen practice or whatever you want to call it? And, uh, and your and and your political involvement to the extent you're involved. Uh, can you repeat that? Sorry, it, no, it's fine. How, how do you see the relationship between your Dharma practice and your politics, broadly speaking? Um, so I grew up kind of like sold. Both my parents had union jobs, and it, it helped them out a lot. So I was always kind of like an anti-corporate leftist, like actually kind of like Aura. I was more of like a hard economic leftist. I, I, I disliked capitalism and. Um, you know, all that corporate shit. And uh, we grew up very much in the country and very much valuing nature, animals and, and the natural order. But I was I was a leftist. And, you know, I was in on the uh, one time I photoshopped a swastika onto George W. Bush's collar. <laughs> Where's the line? Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, you know, I got in college and then I started to hear about I, I basically felt that leftism had turned on me by declaring me inherently evil and terrible because uh, I'm a white guy. Yeah. And I, I sort of came into right wing politics through the through Nietzsche. And um, hmm. I guess you would call like the proto PUA community, uh, which I just stumbled onto on Reddit. Oh, OK. Interesting. Like when what year ish was that? Oh, man, this had to be like uh, maybe maybe 2007 or so. Yeah. I'm not real good with so like timelines. Real, so yeah, but I'm just like, yeah, proto PUA would be probably right like here. a, yeah. like Chateau Hartiste and the r slash r, the red pill subreddit, which now I regard as extremely cringe. But yeah. at the time that was what I needed. Well, there was um, nothing else like that. I mean, unless you want to go like, I guess, I, I guess the, the whatever Stormfront or something was out there, but those guys are even more cringe, right? Or at least from our, from my perspective at the time would have been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I, the link between, uh, understanding the Dharma and doing Zen practice and, and going through the whole thing, Dharma transmission and everything, you know, a big thing in the way I think about politics is that if you clear away everything and pay attention, you will become aware of the natural order and the natural order will teach you what not to do. It will teach you how to live. It will teach you what doesn't work. It will teach you what makes people thrive and be happy and, and flourish and what makes people sad and sick and insane. Amen. I, that that to me is is a huge like what you just said is so true and and it it's funny because when was the last time you heard a leftist talk about flourishing or even happiness really i mean they talk about quote unquote justice and obviously we could pick that apart but but they don't even think in they don't think in those terms they don't talk in those terms it's like it's all you know this and that and equity we got to make sure everybody's equal we got to make sure everybody's equal 
and and there i don't hear them talk about happiness do you i mean i, I could just uh, no no and, and no. you know what's interesting is they sort of have like a a, a dark or sick kind of dharmic thing going on where they all kind of implicitly believe that nothing is inherently anything specific and while this may be true <laughs> yeah right yeah it's uh you just, you cut out for a second but yeah it's it's not true in the way that they think it is right it doesn't invalidate the the regularity of nature and nature's laws you know mm. yes at the root this is true this when we take something apart there's there's nothing greater than that you know and it, there's no there's no uh in, inherent um essence, undividable yeah. yeah there's no self essence well it's like what Nagarjuna has said right you know misunderstand it's like they miss they're like the people who misunderstand emptiness like they're right to point out that there's no essence to things but then they they go in this completely ethically well, nihilistic direction with it yes well right. they they use that they use that to reify the the self it's actually a dharmic right because <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely they, i'm they actually use, a woman sir yeah, no seriously by they say that my i'm such a radical um in you know adam i'm such a yeah. radically separate individual that like even my body is not is must be submitted to like the 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 monad that I am, yeah, yeah, which yeah, is like the exact opposite of yeah, the dharma. Yeah, 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 it's like it's like this, right? Uh, throughout the world, there is no place for dust to alight. But when they slam your gate, or they slam your leg in the temple gate, and it gets broken, it hurts. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, koans are great. I don't know uh, that that many, but that's uh, that's so interesting. This like uh, and and the Zen also is so textual because people people don't. I don't know. I don't know what the image really is. I guess my image of Zen is sort of d different. I know enough to. There was a Tibetan because my my thing is like the. I'll get to myself more in a second, but but briefly, um, you know, there was a Tibetan teacher named. Uh, he was very influential uh, in the transmission to the West. Uh, his name was Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And um, he was active in like the 60s and he knew because there was a lot of interest in Zen at the time, um, you know, he like sat a lot of Zen. And so in his, I mean, he's, he's talking from a Tibetan Buddhist kind of perspective, but he also talks frequently, not infrequently anyway, about, about Zen. And his whole thing was like, Zen is boring. It's boring yourself, stupid, and then realizing the freedom within that essentially of like, you know, you think you have to do all this stuff and you think, oh, this is so repetitive and I got to clean the kitchen again. What the fuck? But actually, if you really pay attention to that, there's there's something going on there. I, I don't know how if that's true from your perspective. Uh, I think what he's reading uh, uh, as boredom, I'm kind I kind of read as calmness and relief. And but yeah, when you go do session, it's boring as hell. It's terrible. I hate it. It's, <laughs> well, that, uh, it's awful. But it, well, it's not. It's. I mean, he's talking about bored. I mean, he doesn't. The point is that boredom is not a bad thing. It's not right. to be pushed away, essentially. I mean, how much how much trouble and strife is in the world because man cannot sit in a quiet room exactly. and enjoy a glass of water? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I'll get back to my, I want to. I'll talk more about myself in a second. But uh, Kagu, are, are you there? Do you? I am here. Yes, and the, uh, yeah. I guess to give a bit of background about myself, I actually am a millennial, just to give an overall uh, impression of my age. And uh, really, if you just the, Long story, I guess. That's well, not too long. But uh, I grew up in kind of a broadly culturally Christian household that wasn't terribly serious about it. And as a teenager, I drifted off into just secular materialism, essentially. Got into Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, pretty much totally overdosed on that. When I got to college, I discovered perennial traditionalism. Mm -hmm. uh, and that kind of caused a bit of a rethinking of the whole 
is secular materialism, is, is rational materialism an adequate way of explaining the world? And it was Rene Guénon's work, uh, The Crisis of the Modern World, that really kind of made me think that maybe the loss of the understanding of the subtle reality had been part of the crisis for why everything was so screwed up. And so from that point, I went back to looking at the Western Christian tradition. So there was a long time when I was looking at sort of between Catholicism and Orthodoxy. Uh, for a little under a year, I was actually attending an Orthodox church. I was seriously thinking of actually converting, and I was reading a lot of theology. For a, I, got, I guess you could say that really, while I really liked it, to an extent, it was hard for me to convince myself that it was really completely true or, or, or that this framework was enough to explain just everything that I was kind of thinking it to be true at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went from there, and at the same time I was looking into this, I was kind of also looking a little bit into the Eastern tradition, so Vedanta, and I was getting a little bit of exposure to Buddhism as well. Um, and what I came across was a lecture, I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh, I might be mispronouncing that, on Anatta. And now, of course, I mean, I had heard the subject before, but, you know, when you hear the, the idea that there is no such thing as a self, it's so contrary to, like, what we as Westerners tend to assume. And so it's a, the temptation is just to dismiss it out of hand. But when he was actually explaining it, it was just, that seems remarkably accurate. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, when I first saw that, I just kind of became very interested in Buddhism. I started reading much more into that and eventually became attracted to the Tibetan tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, it's because, like, I mean, I, I am at heart still very heavily influenced by perennial philosophy. And so... Um, the Vajrayana tradition with the kind of esoteric transmission between the teacher and the student back up this lineage tree, there's a certain attractiveness to that because you can see there's this, this is something that was heavily um, emphasized by Rene Ganon's work where he was talking about the initiatory esoteric traditions that are universal in most of the world's religions. And uh, that's pretty much how I got to it. And, and how do you, so how do you, so it's from what you're, what you're saying, it sounds like your process of political formation was simultaneous with your process of religious formation. Ah, uh, now that one actually, it's, a, that sort of evolved along with it. Yeah. In some ways, actually, I would say that um, the, it's actually interesting how the two had a bit of an interplay. As a teenage secularist, I was a libertarian. Mm-hmm. Which I guess that's a pretty common yeah, combination. Yeah, guys there. in our thing. That's yeah. <laughs> and sort of in the aftermath of the Ron Paul loss in 2012, wondering what went wrong, hmm. I discovered Mencius Moldbug. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so it, it it's actually really funny because when he talks about democracy being almost this religion, this like background assumption that you just cannot question, it's really accurate. It's almost like you find it. It's natural in this. It's as natural to our lives here in the West as breathing. And so when you finally are just like shocked out of realizing these, these assumptions are all bullshit. Yeah. It completely changes your entire, it just, it changes everything. It's like waking up from a dream. And I, I had always sort of thought that um, universal suffrage was fake and gay. And I was <laughs> entirely in favor of things like, you know, 
educational requirements or, or even IQ test requirements for for being able to vote. But uh, I mean, I'll not and not that it didn't come without without problems. But um, but then when I when I was just sort of thinking about it more systemically, having taken the the sort of red pill from from unqualified reservations, you know, the 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 blog on for for Mencius Moldbug, I was like, oh, okay, I was like this uh, this makes sense to me in a way that nothing ever nothing else ever really did. And then it was it was actually it was funny. It was. Um, I was still kind of unformed, I guess, in some ways at the time. I mean, I knew, but but then, uh, but then, because I was I was kind of like poking around. I was I was reading Red State a little bit, uh, and and I was at one point Eric Erickson said something like, "Guys, there's this really serious problem. There's people calling us conservatives, and, and this is like the worst thing ever." I'm like, wait, <laughs> yep. I'm like, wait what? Trigger. <laughs> and then, exactly. And then I so I, I was like, so what's a conservative, and why would anyone call? And that was it. That was the that was the that was the end. I was like, oh, clearly you're a conservative, and these people are completely right. And fuck off. Uh, yeah. I mean, for me, it was just Moldbug actually seriously presenting the arguments against democracy because you never actually saw. I mean, up until that point, yeah. you never would really see a serious argument against against universal suffrage or against having elections period yeah but when he's presenting just how much more functional autocratic societies like singapore are relative to the united states it just it from a libertarian perspective it completely shatters any remaining yeah. um, positive thinking you'd have about the democratic process yeah yeah no, i sorry go on Oh, I was just going to note that I think it's um, interesting and cool that uh, we have, uh, you know, I mean, Storm and I were both talking about how the Dharma bums when we were 18 was an influence. And I just like you guys, um, well, like you, Kagyu, uh, Ganon and Evola had a big influence on me. But then Moldbug, too, that was the same thing for me. And I just add to what you said, Kagyu, uh -huh. his critique of, you know, the the of democracy, you know, of this thing that we just assume is good, like air. Even broader than that, his critique of just the notion of progress at all yeah. in general yes. is so devastating. I mean, if you if you bother to wade through his, you know, eight billion words that he wrote <laughs> and you finish it and you could still believe in progress because maybe you think it's the right thing. But if you believe that there's anything inevitable after reading that, you had your eyes closed, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and it's something that, that uh, is said about democracy by the Finnish deep ecologist Pinti Linkola in his book, <laughs> in his book, Can Life Prevail? He says, uh, uh, democracy requires the majority of all people to not be stupid. Dictatorship <laughs> requires one person to not be stupid. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. All this, like, like Linkola and Evel, I haven't read any of these guys. My, my education was much more, I guess you could say, classical and focused on, which is not a, I mean, I, I think there's upsides to that. There's downsides to that. Um, it's definitely a gap as far as like, you know, talking to people, uh, like you guys and, and something I would like to remedy and we could definitely, you know, anyway, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. So it's a mold bug, I guess you could say pointed me in the direction of Evola and of Joseph mm -hmm. de Maestra and a few of these others and completely rethought. So I, I, from there, I just completely rethought and went from libertarian to straight up reactionary. Yeah. And simultaneously, this was as I was getting into interested in religion, the presentation of Buddhism in the West, I realized, was essentially a bunch of countercultural folks on the left trying to take this as a spiritual varnish for their worldview. Yes. But when you looked at it as it was presented in its original context within, say, the Tibetan tradition, you find a hierarchical 
traditional religion that has none of these features of modern liberalism. And in fact, what we're seeing with Western Buddhism is really just kind of this continuation of 19th century misinterpretation where they try to say the Buddha is like this Martin Luther of Hinduism (laughs) and... Yeah, I uh, I had a early on in my pro- before I was even necessarily would have I considered myself any kind of right wing or had any kind of articulated or even necessarily unarticulated problem with feminism. For example, I, I got into an argument with um, another Westerner who was at the place I was at in in Asia um, because she was she was basically trying to make she was like. Well, I think the Buddha was a misogynist for like, basically it was something like, you know, because the nun, no matter how long you've been a nun, you're like subservient to a monk. And I'm like, first of all, you're, you're applying categories that just have no relevance or like, you're just thinking about this in completely backwards term, but it was, it was an eye opening. I was was like, okay, why am I, what's wrong with her thought process and why am I having the reaction that I'm having? And I was like, well, clearly because, you know, this. If it's true that her argument is ridiculous, which of course it is, then there's some kind of problem with the feminist framework generally. And and a lot of things sort of proceeded from there. It was a pivotal moment for me. I mean, it sticks out and I'm talking about it now. Um, but I think that, that brings us to the, so I wanted to talk about, I mean, that was one of the things that, you know, I, I had sort of tabled, the main thing, I guess, that I tabled, um, and this is a great way to transition into um, talking about Uwiratu because uh, the situation... Based. right and and that's the thing is like it was funny because we were trying to do some you know a little bit of prep for this and and i was uh storm you asked like okay are there any like good videos in this there's not a single like prop like what i would call red pill type video there's no one who's out sorry uh the best you can get is like a neutral interview that's a chinese guy did that's translated um it has english subtitles that's like the best thing it's just neutral there is no like positive western coverage of this not even what i mean like all because of course al jazeera is like these poor muslims <laughs> and, and uh and uh you know even the china news was like blah, blah blah which is funny because the i don't know i mean if people know but the like the burmese so the, the situation in burma is basically they're a military dictatorship and have been for some time and the military is funded and very much within the sphere of influence of china so for i saw like what was it south china news or something that was like parroting the kind of like the the shit lib globo homo line which is oh these poor muslims and uh like it was it was strange because i would think that at least english language oh i don't i guess no i should say probably china i don't have any chinese so i don't know what the china chinese news in china is saying but the english language chinese news was playing along with with the thing about you know how how terrible it is and there was there's absolutely nothing you know vox is is what you would expect and bbc is what you would expect and everybody's out to get this guy um who like you know they've even rescinded did they actually did we i, I should have looked this up but did, i think they they rescinded Aung san Suu Kyi's nobel over this right I didn't read that, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I don't know about her prize, but I know that she's been unpersoned. In the they were media. they were yeah. going they were talking about doing it. I think they've done it, but I'm not sure if they've done, that they actually have. But but there was like the process or whatever was definitely started if it hasn't completed. Um, and and that's the thing is like okay, you're you're looking at I mean people are looking at this as some kind of you know oh it's a genocide. It's like first okay 
first of all, and I'll, I'll maybe put this in. I don't know if I have a way to do this right now. Um, so maybe put it in post. But there's a, you know, you can you can read video, read transcripts, and listen to videos. There's there's um, you know, the Rohingya. First of all, are Bengali. They are not ethnically Burmese. Uh, which is which is the root really of the problem aside from the fact that they're muslim and as muslims they are violent they're a violent population i mean muslims yeah. do muslims do jihad yeah that's what, it, yes. that's what they're taught to do that's what they're doing and i believe that they're doing it and you know the natural response for a muslim minority doing jihad on you is to push back this is very natural i mean if you look at what islam tells them to do and look at what they're accused of doing it's the same, uh, they line up exactly, pretty well. Yeah, right. Oh, and they're. I mean, you can see they have a. I'll, I'll post either in the in the notes or on the thing. There's like you know this this woman talking about how there was this mob that came that killed her husband and cut her in the neck and almost beheaded her, but she was able to escape. And how she was you know her hearing from her uh, grandparents about how she, her grandparents and her parents had to flee Muslim violence from from these so you know these poor poor Rohingya, and and it's like I look. No one. I, I don't. I don't think there's any like uh, violence is bad, right? I mean, I think we can sort of all agree on that, or it's not ideal. But w when you have this population that's first of all ethnically alien, and second of all violent and provocative, like of course you're gonna fight back. What what exactly is the problem with that supposed to be? And and and, and Burma, Burma is a Buddhist country. It, that's pretty much. I mean, that's one of the major internal dynamics in their political situation is part of the issue with the military dictatorship is they're essentially secular uh so there's this problem about you know well this balance you know because they they're uh, part of the thing with being in the chinese orbit is the chinese are atheists so there's this problem between the current chinese government and buddhism but you know even so the average person in burma is a buddhist and does the buddhist stuff and doesn't want muslims dictating the course of their society and why should they yeah, so uh, DK, I think uh, I did a, just a little bit of prep here on uh, the uh, Cliff Notes uh, Burmese history, just Please to go. sort of yeah, set yeah. The thing. do it, do it, do it. Yeah, so um, very, very briefly, um, you know, I think you know people who listen to this are probably pretty smart and may know some of this, but just to refresh people's memories, if you look on a map, Burma is the first country to the southeast of Eastern India, and Eastern India. There's that little sliver that's Indian territory, but that's primarily Bangladesh, and uh, which is a Muslim part of uh, East India, which was East Pakistan under the original uh, partition of that country. Yeah, well, so, so Burma is there. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, you know, just to maybe like get in a little, and so you know, because India is actually there's more Muslims in India than in Pakistan, but the it was almost exclusively Muslim in the parts of the British Raj. Kagi, would you mind muting while the, just because we got I think it's your dog. Um, anyway, so we got, we got parts of the British Raj that are almost exclusively Muslim to the, what's in what's now Pakistan and what's now Bangladesh. Um, and then the rest of it became after part, it was part, first partitioned Pakistan and then partitioned Bangladesh. And then I think now what you're talking about with the border, it's all, if you look at it on a map, it's all fucked up. And I believe there's parts where it's like, in, there's like vil, individual villages sometimes that are geopolitical India inside it's like an island inside geopolitical Bangladesh that is like an island inside geopolitical India at certain parts of the border. So it, yeah, it's it, crazy. It's totally nuts. But yeah, anyway, sorry, go on. 
Yeah, no. So um, that's where it is geographically there to the east of India. And it, it stretches down to the southeast and shares an eastern border with Thailand and sort of the beginning of, of what people might consider more Southeast Asia proper. So it's sort of the it's sort of the transition country, if you will, between South Asia and Southeast Asia. And those um, the the kingdoms there, um, there weren't really united um, politically until the Middle Ages, really. But uh, the conversion to Buddhism began in the in the first few centuries A.D. So for our listeners, the Buddha lived about 500 years before Christ. Um, and there was a great flourishing of Buddhism um, some some years after that, some, during the centuries after that. And it, it really grew like wildfire. And Buddhism is now more prevalent actually outside of India than it is inside of India, um, ironically. But um, so Burma was one of the first countries to to get this wave of Buddhism. And in the first few centuries, they was sort of grew like wildfire. And by the fourth century AD, it was basically an entirely Buddhist kingdom. Um, there was a uh, the Pagan Empire in the Middle Ages, uh, about 1000 AD to 1300 AD, that united it as a country. Um, so it sort of started to look like recognizably what we would call modern day Burma, um, not in a modern sense, but just as a single political entity. And, the, you know, the, the history is, of course, very, very, very complicated. There's many different episodes that I'm completely skipping over, like a Chinese invasion and all kinds of things. But um, in the 19th century, it was colonized by the British um, as part of their sort of wider South Asia colonization. And that was one of their um, like tools, a, right? I mean, that was really one of their main focuses, as I, as I understand it. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. right. It, it was. Um, and interestingly, that's uh, where George Orwell wrote his famous um, shooting an elephant story, which is a great story. Um, so, yeah, and that's that's basically um, Burma in a nutshell. It's called Myanmar. That's from the military junta sort of renamed it that. I don't think, um, you know, that we use those terms interchangeably. Um, I like Burma because it's traditional. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's Burma. It's yeah. Burma. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, they got independence from the British in 1948, and there's been a series of various governments um, in the modern era, and currently, as uh, DK said, it's uh, under this military junta. So that and the, the the entry of the Rohingya is a is a is a totally different thing, but that's sort of like the the um, picture postcard version of Burmese history, where it is and how long and how deeply uh, that Buddhist tradition has been part of. Thank you who for they that. Are. Yeah, that, that's a great thing to keep in mind is is yeah it was buddhist for more than a thousand years before there were any muslims well and i mean the rohingya themselves if the region where they are currently living arakan before the 19th century was also essentially close to 100 percent buddhist and while you can point to say a couple of mosques here and there from the trading communities that were applying that were that were occasionally there the presence of these bengalis there and really they're bengalis was something that the British brought in in the 19th century because it was sparsely populated and the agricultural labor was something they wanted to cultivate. So they brought them in for that. Yeah. Yeah, and in a similar situation, I mean, I don't want to get into the Middle Eastern thing, but to me, there's a certain kind of similarity where, uh, okay, everybody complains about how terrible the Israelis treat the Palestinians, and that's true, but then, you know, the Jordanians, Jordan doesn't want Palestinians. Syria doesn't want Palestinians. Nobody wants these people. And it's like with Bengal, I mean, these people are Bengali Muslims, but they're, they don't want them. You know, like nobody, it's not like, you know, people complain. It's like, okay, well, just move, go to Bengal. But Bengal is like, we got our own thing. We don't, we don't want these people. 
Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I mean, I, I understand that, as I said, the situation is bad, but that doesn't, they're at the end of the day, they're not Burmese, they're not Buddhist and they don't belong there. I'm sorry. And, and there, there are other minorities in Burma that don't cause any of the problems. Exactly. I think there's other Muslim minorities. I think there's other Muslim minorities that don't cause problems. So like, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how much else. Maybe, maybe this was a bad topic because there's not like we all agree, and I don't think there's much to say. But I, I just think it's interesting that trying to look through, you know, international media, it's all about you know this Buddhist Bin Laden, and he's a terrorist, and he's hate. They, they made a didn't this French guy make a documentary about him, right? I, I hope not. <laughs> oh no, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was there was a. Oh, let me see if I can pull up the. But yeah, there was a. I think it was the guy who made. Let me see. Um, one second. So the guy that we're talking about, we've only even mentioned his name a couple of times very quickly. It's um, his given name is Ashin Wiratu, and uh, we're referring to him as U Wiratu because that is his um, his title as a Buddhist teacher, as a as a head, as the abbot, I think. Um, so he is really just a leader of a community, and and he has spoken out he, he first came to uh, knowledge by speaking out um against uh essentially these rohingya murders you know these these decapitations and and um arsons and everything that were going on and he saw the spread of islam in that area and in the rest of the country as a huge threat to his people and um the he, he's organized an entire uh, sort of social movement. So it's it's almost the kind of thing that if it were in a different context, if the shoe was on the other foot, this would absolutely be praised. Oh, and oh, you know, yeah, right, exactly. Like, Which I mean, that gets into like I don't understand what is the deal with uh, like leftists in Islam. I guess they, they it's like in part uh, thinking the crocodile is going to eat them last. I'll tell you what it is. It's a sublimated desire to be dominated by a stronger. That's organism. the Hartis theory, and I, I have seen absolutely no evidence that that's not one hundred percent true. I, I don't. I believe it to be true. Yeah. Well, and in a sense, they just kind of they just kind of cultivate whatever is 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 going to undermine the Western civilization right. because right. they right. dislike it on a very visceral level. Okay, so, okay, the, so movie the movie that I was talking was about talking is called about The Venerable, Venerable w. w. The director, the director is Barbe is... Schroeder, who has uh, done a bunch of stuff, including uh, Mad Men, apparently. Uh, I guess he was he was one of the producers on Mad Men or director or something. Um, yeah, so this is like this big – it was a 2017 release, and it was basically just a hit piece on this quote-unquote hate-filled monk um, – who, yeah, his organization has been banned. It was Bamata or Batama, I forget the exact name. Mabata. Mabata, thank you, yeah. And and they were they were banned by the government, and, and then they reformed, and then they've been banned again or something. But, I mean, they're still active. His monastery is still active. He's still active. It's still an issue. It's not going away because these people aren't going away. And they're not also stopping beheading people. So, yeah. You know, my thing is, if, if he's so evil and bad and terrible – why you know and this is based on his like chauvinistic nationalism ethnic nationalism why isn't this happening to the other minorities yeah because if that's the case and he's a hardline extremist about these things then reason dictates he would be doing the same thing to these other ethnic minorities but it's not happening because the rohingya are provoking it Uh, yeah Yes, they are. Well, and, and, and you know, I've, I've seen people talk because so I uh, there's a there's a pretty famous uh, I don't know if you you know uh, Kagupa uh, Dongsar Kensei Rinpoche. I've not heard the name. No. Yeah. Well, anyway, he's a he's a Nyingma teacher, and he's sort of like 
He directed some. He did, he was the director of The Cup and uh, Travelers and Magicians. He's made some like Hollywood movies. He's done a bunch of stuff. He's a very interesting guy. But anyway, he got in some trouble because he basically came out and said, you know, look, things are bad and there's problems, but you know, you're applying your kind of Western liberal democratic framework to this problem that is, first of all that's not a way very good way to look at things in general and if you're especially if you're a buddhist or claiming to be a buddhist he's really mostly addressing self-identified buddhists primarily in the tibetan buddhist community he's saying you know if you identify as a buddhist like you should be suspicious of western secular liberal democratic norms period at least suspicious and really disdainful number one absolutely yeah exactly number but number two particularly in this case uh you know there's a lot going on here that you don't know, you have no idea, and these people are actually, you know, it's not to say that we're going to justify things, but but why are you judging Aung San Suu Kyi and these people by these by these standards? And people lost their shit, and I saw, you know, I, I don't want to name names, but but like, you know, hot, you know, people with some Westerners, you know, with some clout in the Tibetan Buddhist community being like, well, I can't believe he said this. And, you know, it's genocide and how, you know, genocide is genocide. And I'm like, no one is, no one is genociding the Rohingya. They're, they're moving them. I mean, there's some people that are dying in the process, but like, th this is not quote unquote genocide by any kind of reasonable definition of the term. And of course, you know, there's never a reasonable definition, but, but the point is that we're talking about population transfer period right at worst right and there and, were there were a lot of people in the american soto zen community because that's really the big school in america that mm -hmm. uh that's basically said that same shit and uh, you know already i'm very suspicious of that school um <laughs> because it, it comes out of dogen uh dogen zenji and and the practices enlightenment thing while kind of true it, it lacks something and the whole that whole arm uh as it's been perverted as it's traveled up through my uh, uh, modernity has has just gotten off um, what, what so you, yeah, they, can, you, can you go into that in a little more? I know we're, but we want to return. But, but uh, what do you expand on that if you don't mind? So Zen went to. Oh, you Dogen, for a, a big fat guy. Zen went. Uh, there, Zen, went Zen went to Japan. Okay, and yeah. a fellow named Dogen. Um, he had traveled to China and learned from a guy named Rujing and came back and he wrote the Shobogenzo, the Treasury of the True Dharma Eye, and his whole thing. This this became uh, practices enlightenment. Okay, and uh, you know what 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 they mean is is that when you're absorbed in meditation, this is the same state as uh, when when you actually reach satori. Now, what I would say to that is, yes, it's sort of the same physical mental state, but it's not the same because there's a, a quality that is lacked. There's an effortlessness that isn't there. Um, there are still volitional formations under it. There's still an element of deliberateness. It's it's just not the same, but it's very close. It's sort of physically the same, but it's not spiritually the same. And so the, the whole tradition is now kind of based on that. And this is an error. And this is an error that wasn't present uh, in, the, in the classical period of Zen in China uh, with the Kaodong school, which is sort of the origin of the Soto school. Fascinating. Uh... Is it ordinarily understood that Zen is not effortless in that way, or am I, or, or why do you say that? Well, you. Sorry, you... it's not. It's not. Not really either one. <laughs> uh, everything effortlessly expresses its true dharma uh, at all times. So when you're making effort, that is an expression of the true dharma of effort uh, being effortlessly expressed. 
I'm so Storm. sorry. This is how I have to talk to you. No, 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 I, no, Storm. I like it, and uh, you're you're making a lot of sense. And I just want to point out a little small irony, which is that um, both the times that Dharma just asked you a question, the very beginning of your uh, of your explanation was cut off by a mic cutout, <laughs> and so he says, "Expound the Dharma, expound the Zen, uh, Storm King." And all we get from you for a moment is just silence. Yeah, I'm so sorry about that. I don't know why, but my internet is... No, no, no. It's great. The I don't think it was an accident. Best. I don't think it was yeah, a coincidence. Think, yeah. Because yeah. your mic is working fine now, so whatever. Yeah. Little, little, little uh, koan right there, I guess. Uh, that happened last time I discussed Zen. Two times I've discussed Zen on, on streams, and both times I've had cutouts uh, just like that. Yeah. I don't think that's a coincidence. You know, when I usually when I go on walks through the neighborhood, birds drop flowers around me, so maybe it's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I used to get butterflies a lot. Like, yeah, anyway, it doesn't matter. So what um So you're saying that so in America it's mostly Soto Zen, which is this they're doing they're they're confusing their uh at least partially fabricated meditation for actual Satori. Yeah, I mean, practices enlightenment is the, is the thing, and this is um, a later development in the Soto school. You know, um, it's it's I wouldn't say uh, confusing or like deliberately lying about it. They're conflating two things yeah. that are very similar. It's just that one doesn't have this particular quality. And and so and but and and these are the people that you've seen sort of going after the like the uwiratu etc. Yeah, these are the these are the Zen libs. <laughs> Zen lives. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you go back in the tradition, there's a lot of people being assaulted, cursing, yelling, uh, people being chased around with weapons out of the meditation hall. Yeah. This kind of stuff does not happen anymore. That that sort of a uh, spirit of rowdiness is gone now. And so, in the other the other tradition that's not Soto that you're a part of is what again? Rinzai. Rinzai. And is there's, and there's, this is this this, this, ha this happens? especially in the uh, some of the smaller Japanese Rinzai Zen places. And the thing that Rinzai does is very focused on the koan process. And you have a formal one-on-one -on -one, uh, with your teacher where you talk to each other the same way that masters and pupils talk in the koans. And there's a, there's a process to the whole thing. And like I said, when you, you'll know when you've got Satori, when every koan, every koan you've ever read makes sense to you, you know, they just like like when it happened to me, they all came flooding back through my mind, and I understood the. <laughs> he keeps cutting out at the, the most hilarious moments. <laughs> Say what? Quite, you just keep cutting out at very interesting moments. <laughs> well, anyway, what uh, what's going on is the master is, uh, you come up with a support, he knocks it away. You come up with another support, he knocks it away over and over and over again until the bottom falls out and you have no support. And then the truth is there before your eyes. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. Um, yeah, we'll have to get into this because I, I don't I don't know nearly enough. I, uh, sorry, go on. Yes. Oh, no, I, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I was just going to observe what that what Storm was saying about the um, – what we call them the Zen lips um, to bring it back to Uwiratu. It's remarkable how quickly uh, people will drop their quote unquote principles almost just when instructed to by like Globo Homo Media or something. And that yeah. shows you what that shows you what the real principle at play is. It's it's 
telling the line its conformity essentially to to what's perceived as like the the high status way to think so if if they're you know if you're told um you know buddhists are good and peaceful then buddhists are good and peaceful and then and then if you're told that they're genocidal maniacs then that is what they are in these people's minds like genocidal maniacs and there's no need to investigate there's no need to actually do any independent reading on on any of it so that's why you get somebody like Uwiratu being um being uh you know portrayed this way when it, it really couldn't be further from the truth um and you know interestingly there's a some in in our thing there's something made the rounds uh about i think about a year and a half ago where where the dalai lama said europe should remain yeah. for europeans and he said, you should show compassion for these refugees. You should help them when you can. But this is your home and they need to go home and build their own countries, which is a very sensible. You would think and also right, like yeah. it's also sort of bleeding heart like it is. I mean, he's like, you need to take care of them. And so it's not like you went full, you know, yeah, like, like or anything. He was just saying something that's very sensible. And and Dalai Lama, who has been held up in the West by people who don't know anything uh, as this this perfect guy, you know, basically a, a living saint. Uh, and I love the Dalai Lama. Don't get me wrong, but you know it is comical how they, you know, the way he's they against abortion him. and for gun rights. Like you know, I mean, it's it's not even you know people just have these ideas about stuff because they want to have ideas about stuff. It it, it just it doesn't have anything to do with reality. Yeah, right. and they'll, they'll consider him this great enlightened being, and then if he says something that sounds wrong to them. Then they'll say, well, he's from a traditional culture and he'll get over that. Like he's he's enlightened, but not as enlightened as us. It's really a thing to behold. So they're doing the same thing to Uweratu, who's a less well-known figure, but it's the same process. And didn't the Dalai Lama, I mean, he once said more or less that if a person has a gun and is going to threaten you with it, it's yes. perfectly rational to fight back against yes, them. Yes, exactly. Yes, that's a, basically, a, that's a paraphrase of, yes, the real thing that he really said, yes. And when you look at Islam and you look at its history of interaction with Buddhism, you, you mentioned like North India as the center of Buddhism. There, It's gone. I mean, there's no, yeah. the, the, the Buddhist tradition of North India was destroyed by Muslim invaders in the 11th and 12th centuries. I always tell people like, you know, I, I mean, I try to, it's, you know, I, I tend to try to keep my power level, at, you know, relatively hidden. But whenever I get a chance when I'm talking with normies, you know, I always say like, blah, 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 until the Muslims came and killed everyone, you know, like... Uh, <laughs> Because that's what happened. That's, you know, they came and killed everyone and burned all the monasteries down. And that's why there's just, you know, some blasted out ruins. And and it's funny because you see if you like read, uh, you know, academic literature or, or even not as academic literature on, you know, people, people have to like tiptoe around this issue sometimes. Like, oh, yes. like Sorry. Oh, yes. I mean, it's they, they never want to directly confront it. Like the Buddhism that Afghanistan was a completely Buddhist yeah. country filled with stupas and monasteries. That's where Guru Rinpoche came, came from. from. I mean, that, basically somewhere in like the Pakistan, Afghanistan region was yep. where like one of the most important central figures in the living Tibetan Buddhist tradition came from. And and well, how did that? How did well, that? what's up with what's that? Up with that? At Shingon, the, the monk who brought Koba Daishi, the Sanskrit, he got the Sanskrit text from a monk originally from Afghanistan. Yeah. It's, it, this was like a center for Sanskrit Buddhism, and it was completely destroyed by the Muslims. Yeah. So, and, and, of, course, and of course, Uberatu is aware of all this, and, uh, and, and any, any, I mean, like, it's not like Tibetans aren't aware of this, and it's not, I presume, like most Buddhists, in, I don't know about Japan. How is, are, is there's it, actually, I mean, there is one text in the Tibetan tradition which refers to Islam pretty specifically. You're talking about the Kala Chakra. 
Yes, the Kalachakra Tantra. Yeah, yeah, which is not, I mean, that's Sanskrit. I mean, we have the Sanskrit of the Kalachakra. And yeah, I mean, they basically, like, this is a world-ending thing. I was talking about, we, we don't have a rhinestone on because he had some technical problems. But, you know, he was, when we were talking about this a little bit, um, just the two of us, and he was saying, you know, he, he sort of is, um, this was after the situation in, in New Zealand, and he was sort of trying to take a sober analysis of it. He was saying, you know, I... I, I, there's Tibetan teachers who sort of have said that basically we're approaching the apocalyptic era of the that was foretold in prophecies related to the Kalachakra Tantra, which say basically, I mean, pe- people t- tend to read those in light of what was actually happening on the ground at the time, which was the total destruction of, of Indian Buddhism by Muslims. But, I mean, he was saying, you know, people talk about it as like basically sometime between 2200 and 2400, like Islam will usher in the end of the world. <laughs> um, like they'll just, you know, they'll, they'll provoke this kind of global scale conflict. Um, and that'll be that. And that's, yeah. oh, go on. No, that's very believable. I mean, if, if you look at just how the Islam itself, it, it's, it's, it, it is establishing itself all over the West in Europe. It's, it, I really could see that it's it is actually world ending in a sense. It's it's certainly a threat to Western civilization, much more even than to the Burmese civilization at the moment. Yeah, yeah that's that's absolutely right. And I mean, I was like, yeah, where's our Uwira too? I I, 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 you know, like I don't. Yeah, I. Uh, it's it's. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's nothing. I, I guess just even just talking about it is is. I mean, it's not. Maybe there's more that can be done, but but I think it's it's important for people to understand. Um, not that anyone listening to this initially wouldn't, but uh, you know what's going on and why, and and trying to understand the processes so that we can at least start thinking about um, how to fight it. Sorm, what were you going to say? Oh, I mentioned that uh, those prophecies kind of you know talk about Islam ushering in the end of the world. Kind of makes me think about uh, Israel and oh, Iran yeah. and the nuclear situation there. Man, I, you know, so I, I sort of had a blow. I, I, uh, I used to sort of follow the Federalist and Ben Dominich. I kind of, I kind of liked them. I, I think, I think they've gotten just unbearable since he married Meghan McCain. Um, but he, he had on a, a nuclear policy expert on their podcast. Um, I don't know, pretty recently, like a, like a month or two ago. And this guy was talking about like, oh, you know, what is the you know you, you, American strategic policy with regard to nuclear weapons, blah blah blah. And then he went through a list. He's like, okay, so we got to consider like who are the nuclear armed states. And he went down the line, and he was like, you know, Pakistan, India, France, blah blah blah. And then, and then you know, and of course, probably Iran. No mention of Israel. And I'm like, I <laughs> probably I just, Iraq. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. You know, whatever. And no, he said probably Iran. But 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 like uh, uh. but still it was just no mention of Israel, no mention of Israeli nuclear weapons, which is obviously everybody knows that they have. No mention of like the, the destabilizing effect this has, no me- obviously no mention of like the Samson option or anything like I don't know if people know the Samson option is as my understanding, not a you know, maybe the paranormies or something, but but I think it's a real thing, which is basically Israel's threat is if someone goes after us, we're going to nuke everyone. Or, yeah, sorry, what? No, no, no. Uh, you're right. Yes, and it's real. So Yeah, exactly. So so Israel is basically like the same way that our stated policy, which, okay, fucked up as it was, and some people said it was immoral, but mutually assured destruction, number one, worked, right? Because it didn't happen. And number two, 
was defensive. It was the idea was, you know, if if you launch a first strike, then we'll retaliate with overwhelming force and we both go. So better not do anything. Samson also was, it was limited it was in theory limited to the the actors involved. Correct. Not it was parties. not like we're going to nuke the whole world. It's like if Russia launches something at us, we're going to destroy Russia. Period. Okay, maybe that has other effects, but that was the that was the governing thing. Right, Samson, we're not going to be launching on Argentina. <laughs> Samson option is Samson option in practice means like if if uh, Paris and Washington prevent, don't, sorry, if, if Washington and Paris fail to prevent something from happening in Jerusalem, then Israel, Jerusalem, is going to nuke Paris and Washington. That's Israel's policy. So, like, give me a fucking break. It's an implicit threat to try, and if they're ever put into a situation where they are threatened with destruction, to force the Western yes, countries to act on their behalf. Exactly. 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 It's an explicit threat. Yeah, right. It's yeah, a very yeah, explicit exactly. threat. So, like, I don't, and and that's the thing is, I just don't understand how you know. Anyway, I don't want to go off on Israel. It it's just the the yeah. I I don't. I, you, one could easily see a situation where this increasing instability becomes something that, that blows up. I don't think. I don't necessarily. I mean, I don't know. I don't necessarily think it will. And you know, the prophecies have a way of sort of. You know, they're multi-layered and they could be interpreted and there's, you know, different things that can go on and to some extent they can be mitigated. Obviously, you know, as Buddhists, we all know everything is impermanent. This world will come to an end and everything in it and blah, blah, blah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's something to to be aware of. Well, you asked earlier, you know, what is the sometimes like what is it with this? You know, the Muslims and, and Storm, I think, very astutely pointed out it's partially this desire for for being dominated, but it's also that it's also just in a more sort of mundane uh, geopolitical sense. It's just de- destabilization. It's just these these people will destabilize and are destabilizing Burma, and that's good. That's what they want because it's not fully global homo yet, and yeah. so we've got more work to do. Uh, you know? Uh, yeah. So I don't know what I think. Th- what this is, what I'm getting out of this is, and I'm I have like very limited audio skills and basically no video skills. But I think we should put out a call if some if we could put together some kind of like you know five ten minute red pill video on like here's why Uweratu is is a gangster and is awesome and deserves and needs our support. Um, yeah, I can. Uh... I can maybe put that together, and I'll make a I'll make a uh, a soundtrack for it as well. That would be awesome. I would, yeah, I think that would be great because there's nothing like. I mean, there's literally nothing like that. As you said, the closest thing is like a a, a subtitled video that's just an interview that's neutral, right? There's there's nothing. I mean, we were looking for stuff, and there's just nothing pop, nothing zero positive exists on YouTube. I don't know. Yeah, if, you just can't find it. Yeah, I don't even know. I don't know how long something like that would survive on you. I guess you would have to be clever about it. Um, I, I probably, it, it, yeah. It may be obscure enough that it won't be a problem. I mean, yeah, but if it gets traction, we want it to get traction. We don't want it to be obscure. And, and the, 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 I think we have to be. You have to be. You don't want to like. You, we want to avoid the ban hammer. But what but, you what you want to do is frame it as if we're leftists playing the devil's advocate, and then it will be fine. That's a great. That's a great idea. That is a great idea. So yeah, we should we should put together something like that because you know just to be able to read people. If someone says something about like, oh, in the situation in Burma, I'd be like, well, have you seen this video? <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, I think that would be I think that would be a, a great benefit because that's a, I, I just it's it's insane to me how like it, it's really interesting and 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 you know, in, in, I think in a similar way to where like 
Christianity gets tarred with this brush of like, if you, anytime a Christian stands up for themselves, it's like, oh, you're, you're not really being Christian, are you? Because you're not being a total doormat for whoever is trying to exploit you. It's yep. a very similar thing with, with Buddhism, where it's like Buddhists are expected to just like never take their own side, never stand up for themselves, never, you know, have any kind of interest in, and, and it's like leaving aside just the anti-human, completely unrealistic expectation side of that. The reality, I mean, from my perspective, it's like, well, no, we want the Dharma to flourish. We want people to abandon their, you know, disgusting, violent religion of Islam and, and embrace something that's true, right? Like, don't we all want that? So, like, of course we want them. Of course we need to fight. And if that, if that means fighting back, then we need to fight back. Amen, brother. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm with you. So... Anyway, I th- I think uh, with I know Storm, you gotta go. I gotta go. It's probably it's getting a little um, late. And uh, if, was there something else anyone was something those people wanted to say or plug maybe? I no, know. I think it's just we should look forward to um, to what we do in the future. I I think uh, you know we've done a lot of discussion on what we're going to talk about, and it's not always going to be about this or that political situation. We're going to talk about the Dharma. We're going to talk about uh, personal experiences, different schools, um, all magic powers, all kinds of cool stuff. I, yeah, yeah I think the, uh, the, the interfaith interschool dialogue should be really fun and, and, and people will enjoy that. I hope so. I agree. Yeah. So, so okay. okay. Uh, was there anything, anything people want to plug? Uh, I know storm, you have some new music, right? Uh, you can go and check out uh, stormkeymusic.bandcamp.com. And that's where all my stuff's at. And you other guys? I've not I have I don't have anything to plug now. Listen to right wing Dharma squads. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Keep listening. I hope you enjoyed and uh yeah, we will we will uh meet again next time. 